welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23rd, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil from Cover 2 Resources. In June of 2016, I sat down with Dr. Tom Gilson, the nationally known and locally admired medical examiner from Cuyahoga County in Cleveland, Ohio. I asked Dr. Gilson to review the medical examiner's report from Palm Beach County for my son in the hopes of learning something that might help others. Today, we'll revisit that discussion and talk about how some communities are studying overdose victims' records to discover new prevention strategies to slow the opioid epidemic. Also joining me today is Brittany Spencer, the Overdose Fatality Review Coordinator for the Baltimore City Health Department. Ms. Spencer and the rest of the OFR team do a deep dive into the autopsy reports, treatment admission reports, police reports, medical records, and all other relevant reports and records to identify missed opportunities for prevention, and they collaborate with stakeholders to develop new programs based upon their findings. We begin today by revisiting my discussion with Dr. Tom Gilson, Cuyahoga County Medical Examiner from Cleveland, Ohio, who framed the impact of the opioid epidemic in Northeast Ohio this way. I think about this on a very regular basis, and I really think this will kind of be the public health crisis of my whole career. It's hard to watch people just vanish in such big numbers, and I think that the urgency of this problem is still sinking in on a lot of levels. What we do essentially in Cuyahoga County every year up until now is basically load up a couple plane loads of people and just crash them into Lake Erie. You know, and this year will be worse. And I have to say, you know, are we doing enough is my question. You know, and I, I I don't know that I would say yes to that because we're not turning the tide on this. And, you know, if we lost so many people from, say, Zika viruses, we lost in one month in Cuyahoga County, what would our reaction be? You know, do we have to keep waiting for, you know, the Philip Seymour Hoffmans or the Princes to get our attention on this? Our neighbors are dying around us in so many, you know, with such frequency. We need to do a better job with this, and I don't have all the answers to that. Dr. Gilson reviewed the medical examiner's report for my son. He talked about what can be learned from the report to make a difference in the lives of others. Well, you know, one of the reasons we wanted to go back and look at these individuals who died is because I think that they are going to potentially, you know, teach us things about how to address the problem going forward. I think a couple things come to mind when we see such a high percentage of the addicts who are dual diagnosed, be it bipolar disorder, depression, 
other forms of mental illness, anxiety. And first lesson, I think, is to the prescribers, you know, the treating physicians, is, you know, if these folks are coming for treatment, be aware they might have a substance abuse problem. Because, again, what we see in my office is the tip of the iceberg, I think. And there's probably lots of people out there who are addicted to pain medication who are seeing a physician, a treating physician. And that's the time to intervene, potentially, to treatment and successful recovery. In 2012, Maryland passed legislation to establish a local drug overdose fatality review teams. The teams conduct confidential reviews of resident drug and alcohol overdose deaths to identify the opportunities to prevent future similar deaths. I sat down with Brittany Spencer, the Overdose Fatality Review Coordinator for the Baltimore City Health Department, to talk about that program. As we begin, Ms. Spencer talks about the data sources that are collected for the OFR team meetings. One of the main sources of some of the information is our, um, what we call the OCME, the Office of the Chief Medical Examiner. Um, So that is where the data comes from as far as the, um, you know, what the exact cause of death was um, and in what was um, positive um, on the toxicology screen and that type of information. But a lot of the other information that we review during these meetings comes from um, both here at the, uh, the local health department, the behavioral health treatment and recovery services, um, local police, um, EMS, hospital participants, um, the prosecutor's office. So we have state's attorneys um, that attend these meetings, Department of Social Services, um, the um, Department of Juvenile Services, Homeless Services, um, Harm Reduction Services, And then we also have information from pharmacies through the PDMP, um, the prescription monitoring tool that we um, have access to through this piece of legislation. So every other month, the group gets together and they get in a room and review three cases. How do you select those cases? So we uh, select the three cases based on a theme that's, that is um, discussed throughout the group or that our epidemiologists help us come up with. So if the epidemiologist here at the health department sees something going on um, you know, through their data, then maybe we'll take a look at that. And one thing that I can think of off the top of my head that we've done is surrounding um, overdoses around payday. So we selected cases that occurred, that the death occurred on or near what we consider to be payday. Um, We've done people who died within a one-mile radius of a methadone clinic. Um, So locations. So um, essentially, we get the theme and then we try to match it to the data that is available to us through the state's OFR dashboard. So you have a theme and then how does that bring us back to the those individuals, those three individuals that you select for that particular meeting period? So when we select a theme, um, so say it was people that died within one mile radius of, of a methadone clinic. So we will um, kind of clean up the, the OFR download and we will select, maybe there's 20 cases that fit that theme. But then when we look further in, how much information is readily available right there on the OFR dashboard. So circumstances of death, sometimes there aren't any listed. Um, sometimes it, the name is um, Jane Doe. Sometimes 
Um, there's just missing information. So we try to choose the ones that have the most robust information readily available before we send it out to the partners to collect further data. From there, what happens? So we um, send out to our partners um, the behavioral health systems um, that oversees uh, many or all of the substance use treatment and mental health treatment in the city. Um, we look through um, CRISP, which is our dashboard um, for um, all medical information, um, the PDMP. Um, we have the HCAM, which is the Health Systems um, Access Maryland. Um, we have the um, harm risk reduction teams that can report um, on information such as if they release, received naloxone or they received naloxone training, um, Department of Social Services, Mayor's Office of um, hum, um, Human Services, EMS, uh, Baltimore Police Department, um, the Criminal Justice um, so the detention center, um, the state's attorney, and Department of Parole and Probation. Wow, very extensive. Mm -hmm. So you collect all this information beforehand, and you distribute it to all of the participants in that two-hour session in advance of the meeting? So no. So we, um, due to the confidentiality of the meeting, um, they do not see the um, partner's information until the day of the meeting. And then that information also has to stay at the table because it is so confidential. So as a coordinator, um, I would gather all of the information, um, put it together on a summary, um, which is a couple pages long. And then I also try to include as much information that's available. Um, for instance, if there's an obituary, especially if there's an obituary with a picture to really put a face to this person. And it's not just a last name and a number. Um, and then I would build a timeline to show significant life events, maybe not every single one, um, but the ones that stand out to me from the data that is collected. And so in getting together and reviewing this information, you've got a number of goals. Can you walk us through those goals so our audience can get maybe a, uh, a little bit uh, better sense going in? The overall program goals to identify missed opportunities for prevention and gaps in the system. Um, so maybe if that person, you know, had several ER visits and and never um, had any type of referral. So maybe there's a referral issue with some of the sources that we have. So maybe if the person is seen at the ER, maybe they the ER itself doesn't know, you know, the referral process for um, substance use treatment. Um, so really trying to identify some of the gaps in the system, um, build working relationships between local stakeholders on overdose prevention and improve overall collaboration and community within the jurisdiction. Um, so the communication is key, obviously. So I think that that is really taken care of um, during that meeting. So having all those stakeholders at one table is is very unique and is very um, opens up a lot of opportunity for their uh, for discussion. Um, so informing local and state overdose and opioid mis, uh, misuse prevention strategies. So we would try to strategize some of our outreach efforts, for instance, um, from a lot of the data that we gather. Um, our epidemiologists would gather and disseminate to the group. So if we're seeing an uptick in a, a specific neighborhood, we would then strategize to get more outreach in that specific area. Prior to our interview, a timeline for a Jane Doe 
Representing a typical case the OFR team reviews was developed for our discussion. Some of the um, things that a lot of times will pop out um, for us to include in this timeline are life events. Um, when the individual, um, if the individual even did, um, have uh, medicated assistant treatment, um, mental health and substance use uh, disorder services. Um, so not necessarily included, um, including medication assisted treatment, um, emergency room visits, hospitalizations, overdoses um, that they've had that were non-fatal, um, prescriptions um, that they had used, um, you know, that they were prescribed opioids, um, and then any points at which they received naloxone, um, and then at any point that they had an arrest due to um, a controlled dangerous substance. So you've plotted it on a timeline, so you can begin to visualize this individual's life as they struggled with substance use disorder and the various events as it went along. It begins uh, with uh, them getting treatment and getting into treatment. Take us from there. So you can see um, that they started and ended treatment very quickly. So maybe they were just kind of, you know, trying it out and maybe it didn't work for them because they were in it for just three months. So that's a highlight point. And then they start again a few months later, um, three months later, they start treatment, um, mental health services and substance use disorder treatment again. And it, and it lasts for about a year. In that particular case, they could be inpatient and then transitioning to outpatient, maybe intensive outpatient, and they're still connected to the system in the whole time. It's not necessarily one phase of it. It could be many phases, mm -hmm. correct? So they could have different levels, I think, if that's what I'm understanding. So different levels of, of the care. Um, and so then all of a sudden you see the person, um, you know, ends their, their treatment but then all of a sudden has an arrest. Um, then they receive naloxone the very next month. How far out are we for the arrest from the end? Um, so we are about five months after they end treatment. So five months after that, they, they have a, a controlled dangerous substance arrest. Um, that very next month, they, they receive naloxone and naloxone training. So clearly they've, they've had some type of um, point of contact with um, with one of our um, harm reduction groups. And then for several months, they were um, receiving opioid prescriptions. So, you know, in a, in a lot of these cases, it's severe um, pain management, you know, severe back pain, what have you. So they're receiving um, prescriptions. Looks like 11 months there. Yeah. And one time there's naloxone involved, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. They're getting it for about a year. Um, and then... Subsequently, about four months later, they start medicated assistant treatment. So they want to stop taking that prescription opioid and they want to um, get onto medicated assistant treatment. So they are on that for about two years. Um, in the meantime, they have, um, in between those two years, they have some significant life um, events happen a death of a friend. Um, and then they also have um, an overdose and an ER visit. So you have those two things. So that's something that could stand out, you know, did, questions that can come out of this. Did, did their treatment provider know about these life events? Did they know about the ER visit 
and the overdose. So that's some somewhat of the collaboration and improving some of the communication between a lot of the the partners. Um, so then, you know, then I show that the person ends the treatment after those two years. Um, they have another emergency room visit um, that's not um, substance use related. And then they have a birthday and then they pass away. And that's what we have for our visual of this person's life from the information we gathered. So at this point, you, you're beginning to formulate the story and you're also beginning to formulate some ideas in terms of the takeaways here that could benefit other families moving forward. Share some of those. Sure. So I think that it's really trying to identify um, some of some of the, the trauma that goes into and the life events that go into the substance use and the cycles of substance use disorder. Um, and really just, I guess, our main efforts here in, in our division is to really um, spread the education and, and understanding about the various layers of substance use disorder. One of the first programs to come out of the work of the OFR teams was the Level of Cares Initiative, which is a shared framework of establishment of services for patients with high-risk opioid use disorder in emergency departments, inpatient and outpatient settings, and to establish the policies to prevent new cases of opioid use disorder from emerging. Levels of care was something that was implemented about a year and a half ago um, through the the city health department. um, And they really um, got all of the medical um, hospitals um, on board with um, identifying themselves as a level one, two, or three, um, applying for one of those levels of care. And essentially what that is, is their knowledge and their expertise and what they have readily available within that hospital system. So in the long run, once everybody has identified themselves as a level one, which is as high as you can go, that means that no matter if you go to one brand hospital or another brand hospital, you're going to get the same treatment and the same connections no matter where you're at in the system. So for instance, if you go to the emergency room, there's going to be peer supports there. If you're admitted into the hospital, there's going to be peer supports and case management there. When you're discharged, there's going to be follow-up and there's going to be full wraparound care for both your physical health and your substance use treatment. Levels of care was something that that came out of all of these meetings because it seemed to be a reoccurring theme. The individuals, you know, were getting, um, were accessing treatment or accessing um, medical care but maybe not necessarily getting, um, you know, getting connected. There were no plugs for the substance use treatment. They were simply treating um, some of the typical medical conditions um, like hypertension and, you know, heart, con- heart disease and things like that. And maybe n- not necessarily catching that substance use disorder. What are some of the other profound uh, things that you've learned as uh, a result of this program, which has been in place since 2014 now? So um, a couple of the other projects that have come out of it, um, the EMS Leave Behind, which is huge. So a lot of times um, individuals decline uh, transport. You know, they they just got Narcan. They just got sent into withdrawal hard and fast. And so maybe going to the hospital is not exactly on their, you know, top of their agenda in that moment. So um, when e- when they decline um, transport to the hospital, EMS leaves a 
um, a kit of naloxone behind with them and bystanders and family um, so that, you know, they have it. So if this happens again in the, in the individual, even if it's not that, that individual or it's somebody else, um, then they have the kit that's, that's there with them. Treatment intake forms were also modified by what they learned in the review process from the OFR teams. In the past, we've used um, kind of a, an Excel-style um, spreadsheet to send to um, the providers to ask the questions. Um, so it, it really limits and doesn't um, offer a friendly space for a lot of narrative. So by um, uh, kind of, we've actually framed the new, the new um, request forms off from what um, our child fatality review has already been using for years. Um, and that's more of a yes, no, drop down box um, word format and allows for a lot more narrative and a lot more questions to be answered because some of the information that was available from our partners weren't necessarily being captured because the question wasn't being asked. So kind of just tweaking it and learning as we go um, has been something that I have personally learned in this, in this adventure of, of OFR. Now let's go back to that meeting, one of those meetings, and let's talk just a little bit about how it progresses. You told us uh, that you prep all the documents for the meeting. You give everyone uh, their first look at those documents right there in the meeting, and the documents never leave it. So for those two hours, you're pouring over them, but you have a a very uh, specific and structured process. Tell us about that. So essentially the way that the meeting runs, if you looked at our agenda, um, we open with our epidemiologist uh, going over um, the OFR data. So our epidemiologist actually will um, will frame the data um, based on the theme. So there's that. And then we also go over the most up-to-date um, overdose, um, non-fatal and fatal um, data. So after that, then we go straight into the um, reporting form. So we start by um, just listing out the the demographic information, the person's name, date of birth, where the incident happened, um, what the um, cause of death was, what they tested positive for, um, the incident um, neighborhood, the description of that neighborhood is, are overdoses um, common in that CSA? Are they not? Um, we'll cover the reported circumstances of death. And then from there, the partners kind of take over and report on their areas. Some of the observations really go to some places that I wouldn't think that they would end up. I mean, you not only talk about substance use and overdoses and their history, but then you, you start to get into some other things such as intimate partner violence. This goes a little bit further, I guess, is the point than what you would think on the surface. Can you provide some insight? So, yeah. So some of those key points are um, kind of generic and not necessarily um, included in every single um, meeting that the city has. Um, but, you know, certainly if that if that information is available from a partner that we um, request information from, we would absolutely include that. So if um, the police, when we request information from the, the police, for example, they're not only going to tell us about um, cases that involved substance use or, you know, controlled dangerous substances. They're also going to include any type of, um, you know, partner violence or any type of, um, you know, 
arrests that they had, no matter what the charge was. So I think that that's kind of where that would come in. Tell us a little bit about the how big of a difference this program has made in the community and what's next for it. So I think that it's made a huge difference in the community. I think that it's it's provided um, some really good framework for strategies around building um, some of these programs, um, such as the levels of care and the EMS leave behind. I do believe that LEAD also came out of this, which is the Law Enforcement Assisted Diversion Program. So really just trying to build programs in the city that can, um, you know, influence and impact this this epidemic that's, you know, ravaging the country, really. So I think that those are the main takeaways is really just structuring um, and looking at it from not only the the grand, the bird's eye view, but also looking at it from, um, you know, from the, the, the ground, from the person that we're reviewing. Um, you know, if there's something that pops up in there through the Department of Social Services, um, with a child involved, we want to make sure that that child in particular has wraparound services. So does that impact the city as a whole? No, but, you know, that is a point of, of um, connecting with one person to make sure that they have wraparound services as an un- unintended victim of substance use disorder. And you engage the family and friends and interview them also in this process. Share a little bit about that. So we are we haven't quite gotten there yet. We are we are getting there. Um, we're trying to work out the kinks. Um, that's something that the CFR um, in well femur mainly the fatal the the fetal infant um, mortality review does. Um, but we are working with a, a nurse from Johns Hopkins to try to help us um, form the questions. Um, uh, try to figure out who would be the most appropriate um, organization to do these reviews. Somebody that's trauma informed, somebody um, you know that can go through this process and and not cause any more trauma that's than, that's already occurred. Um, so that is something that we are definitely pushing towards and really trying to move forward so that we do get a better picture when we are you know capturing this individual on a timeline. Um, I think that it would be crucial and I think it would be very valuable for the review committee to have that perspective of the family because it was such an intimate vantage point. I think that this is is something that is very um, impactful and I think that it would be uh, great to see this um, come up in other locations because as I said, this is something that is absolutely impacting and ravaging the entire country, not just, um, not just Maryland. So I think that it would be great to see something like this in every jurisdiction across the country. So what have we learned? We've learned that when a diverse set of stakeholders, including county health officers, director of Department of Social Services, the state's attorney, superintendent of schools, state, county, and municipal law enforcement, director of county behavioral health, emergency medical service providers, hospital representatives, healthcare specialists in prevention, diagnosis, and treatment of substance use disorder, local jail and detention center representatives, parole, probation, and community correction representatives, Secretary of Juvenile Services, when those groups all convene to study the lives of those who have lost their lives to the opioid epidemic, new prevention measures can be found to save lives and prevent substance use disorder in the future. We also learned that key intervention points, like levels of care and law enforcement-assisted diversion programs, were all developed 
because of the work of one OFR team in Baltimore. If your community would like to learn more about starting an OFR program, contact Brittany Spencer, the director of the Overdose Fatality Review Initiative with the City of Baltimore Health Department. My name is Greg McNeil. I'm the founder of Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for joining us for this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.